Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. The Sports History Network is blessed with a lot of talent. Men who have special love for sports, for the history of sports, and for communicating that history through means of podcasts, articles, and books. It is truly an honor to be part of such a great network and to be able to call these men friends. One of these men that I get to work next to is Joe Sigorski. He has written three books over the history and historical figures of the NFL, plus he is a member of the Pro Football Researchers Association. Not only that, he hosts a great podcast on the Sports History Network called The Pigskin Past. And I encourage you to go give it a listen, along with the other 12 podcasts that we have available on the Sports History Network, your home for the yesteryear of sports. While you are at it, please subscribe to this podcast, the Football is Family podcast, and give it a rating. Plus, if you would like to be a guest on this podcast to discuss your favorite team, player, or moment, please message me at Jeremy underscore McFarland or on the Football is Family Facebook page. And we are back to Football is Family podcast, and I have a very, very special guest, one that I've been looking forward to for a while to come and talk to you. Can you introduce yourself, my friend? Sure. Uh, my name's Joe Zagorski. I'm uh, author of three different books about pro football, the NFL in the 1970s, pro football's most important decade, um, the year the Packers came back, Green Bay's 1972 resurgence, and America's trailblazing middle linebacker, the story of NFL Hall of Famer Willie Lanier. Now, the Willie Lanier book is one that uh, I'm going to get pretty soon. I, I've got that on my wish list. Uh, I'm looking <laughs> forward to it because when you think about middle linebackers, he should be in the top 10 that you think Definitely. Of. Definitely. You know, you got your Buckus and you got your Ray Lewis and, uh, and you have to have Willie Lanier. With, without a doubt, I would say he's in the top five at least. Oh, you say top five? Okay. I would All say right. top five. Now, what set him apart? Um, and I, I listened to your uh, – I, I listened to it before, but I re-listened today, your interview with, with uh, the football history dude with Arnie. Yeah. And, and you said, you know, you didn't, you didn't think that there was a book written about Willie Lanier. I, I didn't. I, I wasn't sure if there was or not. And then I looked around and I, I couldn't find one. And I thought for myself, he's been re retired for so many years, several decades. His last year was 1977 as an active player. And I just couldn't believe that nobody had written about him. He, you know, like we said, he's in one of the top five or ten middle linebackers of all time, and nobody wrote a book about him. So it, it kind of um, woke me up into thinking, you know, there's a lot of great players that nobody ever writes about. Well, what made him – special not just his okay. abilities but what what made him special he was uh, well first let's look at his size he was like a prototype size for a middle linebacker during that era real stocky not really overly tall but just just built like a load like he, he you would you would have to consider him kind of like a, a cinder block building 
in the middle of the line um, because people would run up against him and just bounce off of him because they they weren't going to go through him. Um, that was one thing about him. But another thing that's even more lasting is the fact that he was so intelligent. He, he was the type of a linebacker who could read and diagnose a play instantly. And um, he was also really athletic. He had, I believe, 27 interceptions. And for a middle linebacker during an era that ran the ball more than it threw the ball, uh, that's a really a big number of interceptions. Uh, so he, he, he was a complete package. Well, he, see, was he was a uh, excuse me. He's not just that. He's a trailblazer because many people thought at that time that a black man could not play middle linebacker. And he said, let me show you. Right. Let me show and you that, that I can. Well, and, and, and this, the argument went not just with middle linebackers, but later on with quarterbacks. And now today, I, I don't know if there's a team in the league that doesn't have at least one African-American quarterback on their roster. I don't think, you know, that's, uh, I, I hate when stereotypes are made. Yeah. But you also love it when people say, all right, you don't think I could do it. Just, just wait and I'll show it to you. Mm -hmm. Willie Lanier, uh, Herb Adderley, uh, 60s you you run into the 70s like you what you uh, what you wrote about where you had in the uh the the Steelers with 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 their teams yeah uh it's it just it's one of those things that I respect men who know they're good but don't only play for themselves but they play for the bigger picture and, mm -hmm. and to me what I understand about uh about Willie Lanier is that that's what he did you're right you're absolutely right um he, he realized his place in history, but he also realized that he wanted to be a winner, and he knew that the Chiefs were going to give him that opportunity, as well as many other African Americans who he thought were as good or better than Caucasian, certain Caucasian players. And they, he proved them right. Uh, they won Super Bowl four, and they were, they were the underdogs. Nobody thought they could win. And they had no trouble winning, as it turned out. It was, so, uh, yeah, they really did take it to the Vikings. Oh yeah, um, you know, and uh, yeah, they they out. You know, I, I don't really understand why they were picked to be an underdog because they're they were so much bigger and stronger size wise, especially on, along the two lines, offense and defensive lines. Uh, you would have thought that they would they would be able to manhandle them. Um, Minnesota really only had maybe two good drives in that game. That was it. So, so you you uh, you said on your interview, and I and I and I think uh, just talking with you just briefly, this is your your decade is the seventies. Yep. And you believe this is that's the greatest decade, or or according to your publisher, that was the greatest decade in yeah. in NFL history. Yeah, um, it's it certainly was the one that I enjoy the most. Uh, so many different things happened in the 1970s. You, you had the uh, invention of Monday Night Football, which glamorized the sport like nothing else before ever did. Uh, you had so many household names from the 70s that we're talking about even today. Um, you can go on a street corner and say to somebody, Hey, do you know who Joe Namath is? Yeah, I saw him plug in insurance on a commercial just yesterday. <laughs> you know, and and he played in the '60s and '70s. Um, there, there, and then of course, it you know, 
it was it was a it, the seventies was a time where the game was not oversaturated like it is today. Today you can't go and watch uh, football. I mean, you can watch football twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred sixty five days a year. You can get just dulled by it. But in the seventies, once the season was over, it was over. You didn't hear a thing about it. You didn't see anything about it for six more months. So it built up an anticipation, something to look forward to. Once the baseball all-star break happened, you knew right around the corner was going to be football training camps. Today, there's no offseason. As soon as the Super Bowl is over, you'll have the combines. Um, and then you'll have uh, you know, pro days. You'll have the draft. Then you'll have mini camps. Then you'll have the training. You know, there's no off season today, but back at that time there was, and it it made you um, look forward to something later on that year. Now, now one of the things that I enjoy looking at when I watch some of the old NFL films, mm-hmm. the stadiums. Yeah, they were. What what's the? You know, I'm trying to be nice, but it's hard. Joe, it's hard to be nice when you're looking at. Uh, the vet, yeah. Three River Stadium, and I think that they were built. A lot of those stadiums, Riverfront, were they were built about the same time. They were, they were. And I know they that were. they were dual purpose in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. uh, what I understand about those stadiums is that uh, when they were made, they were they were pieces of junk. Well, nobody thought that at the time. Unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, the players certainly didn't didn't care for them too much. They certainly didn't care for the turf because they were all artificial turf for the most part. Yes. But, you, you know, that you could have I, – I remember some players saying that if you didn't know better, you would swear you could have been in any one different city and they were all looking the same. Um, now, was when, it because because that, that I think some of them, the same contractor built them? I don't know about that, but I know there was a certain – look about them. I mean, Riverfront Stadium in, in Cincinnati and Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh, you really almost can't tell the difference. Uh, they, they just look so similar. Um, even their their press boxes look the same. It's really incredible. Um, but, you know, today and today's baseball stadiums, a lot of them have the same idea. They want the city skyline in yep. the back in the outfield. So that's kind of similar too. Um, so maybe you know, maybe but, there's some history coming back again. You I don't know, know, and 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 I respect that. I, I say jump because you look at it now compared to uh, the the Taj Mahal there in Dallas and in Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, even you know, uh, Qualcomm Stadium, and well, I guess that's not what it's called now. I can't remember what it's called now up in Seattle. Uh, yeah. Even even my Titan Stadium, uh, which is on the low end of the stadiums, uh, compared to some of the older ones, there really isn't a comparison. Um, but you're talking about bleacher seats, and you're talking about everybody piled up on each other. And, and there was a there was just it looked fun. <laughs> it, it looked fun, uh, but at the same time, you realize that with the with the stadium like it was, it, it's not as good as they are now. No, and you, but you know, back at that time, we couldn't predict what the future was going to look like. Uh, Texas Stadium, where the Cowboys played, we thought that was the greatest thing of all time. And as it turns out, today there are dozens of stadiums that look better. 
you, you know, and everybody's trying to outdo the Joneses. Um, you know, they always want to do something a little bit better. The one in Atlanta looks really grand. And then they take uh, in Las Vegas and in, in Los Angeles, they take certain ideas about the scoreboard that's in Atlanta and they incorporate them in their stadiums. So it's, it, it, it's you're, you're starting to see the copycat, you know, going around in the league as well. But they're all trying, the league's trying to get people to go to the games. Now, of course, with COVID, you can't. But it, minus the COVID, the league has a problem, and it's getting people to go to the games. It's very expensive to go to a game anymore. Whereas on television, you've got all these camera angles. You've got high definition. You've got, you know, it, it saves so much money, and you get a great view of the game right on television. Um, I, I would think that when COVID is over, the, the league would be smart to lower ticket prices to get more people to go to the game because well, not only that, but lower those, uh, you don't want to pay $5 for a Coke. Yeah. Well, that's, that's another thing. It, it costs, oh gosh, I went to a Titans game several years ago in preseason and oh. it cost me, it cost me more to park than it cost to get in the stadium. Yeah. You, um, and I was thinking that, you know, $20 to park, whatever. Uh, if it was just me, I would park, I will park here where I live and walk. I don't care about it, but yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they'll get you. They'll get you. And oh. I hear over at LA it's, it's close to a hundred dollars to park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, who, who can really afford that? Uh, you know, these, these people that have season ticket hold, you know, they're, I don't know how they do it. They, they obviously have to have some kind of wealth, but uh, it's it's just so expensive. I I you know, it's I in the seventies. Do you know you could go to a Super Bowl for twenty dollars? You could, a Super Bowl. You couldn't park for that. Yeah, today you could. Yeah, in Super I, Bowl ten, you could go. You can get a fifty yard line seat for twenty bucks. Now I didn't know. I didn't know that. And that, that's how crazy it, it has gotten. So <laughs> so you're. So your emphasis are, is in the 70s, and I was thinking today about some, uh, some great players, O.J. Simpson being one of them, mm-hmm. uh, probably one of the best players of the 70s. But Walter Payton came around, what, in 78, 77? No, he was, uh, I believe he was a rookie in 75 or 76. Okay, okay. So he was starting to hit his stride about that same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had, uh, you know, Terry Bradshaw, you had, uh, Jim Marshall. Now let me, let me bring this up. If there's a man who deserves to be in, uh, Canton, Ohio, it's yep. Jim Marshall. Okay. And what do we know about Jim Marshall? One play. Well, he's, he's an iron man, obviously played several decades. Uh, you know, yeah, but we only we know him for the one, the wrong way run, right? And that that to me is a shame. That that man was uh, part of the Purple People Eater, was a great, great player. But that's a shame. Were it not for that play, he would have been in the Hall of Fame decades ago. There's no question in my mind. But you're, you, you're looking at the 70s. You have some great quarterbacks. What are some of them that, that pop up to you? 
Well, you, you have to start with Roger Stallback of the Cowboys because he's the one that a lot of people remember today. You mentioned another one, Terry Bradshaw. There's Ken Stabler of the Raiders. There's Bob Greasy of the Dolphins. Fran Tarkenton of the Vikings. Uh, John Brody of the 49ers. Yes, I didn't think of him. Yes. Ken Anderson of the Bengals. Uh, later on, Brian Sype of the Browns. I mean, there's 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 a bunch of them. The, it was a decade for quarterbacks, no question about it. Now, uh, what are some of the rules in the 70s? Because I, I, if I remember correctly, there was one in particular that really opened up the offense. What are some of the rule changes that really made a difference? Well, um, there were quite a few. Uh, in 72, they changed the hash marks on the field to come closer to the middle of the field, which opened up the running game. They thought it was going to open up the passing game. It did the opposite. It opened up more runners. Uh, more area for running backs. Um, and we had more 1,000-yard runners in 72 than in any previous year. Um, then in 78, was that was the big year where you had uh, – you couldn't touch a receiver after five yards. That was important. And you had uh, legalized holding going on from 78 on where an offensive lineman could extend his arms and lock his elbows and grasp the jersey of a defensive lineman, uh, basically legalized holding. And that that rule has done more to change the game than anything else because pass blocking and pass rushing, that'll always be the same. It's getting to the quarterback and protecting the quarterback. And Don Shula was on the competition committee for many, many years, and he fought that. He tried to stop the competition committee from doing that, but he eventually relented and gave into it because he knew that they were going to eventually do it sooner or later. So he gave up in 78. You started to see more and more points being scored, more and more passes being thrown, more and more completions. It, you know, it, it just snowballed into an, uh, an offensive firepower um, statistic-wise, that we've haven't stopped since. Now, what um, could we have an undefeated team like oh, yeah. in the '72? Could we have that today? Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, I'm almost 58. I think we'll see it in my lifetime. I think. I mean, we've come close. The Patriots were one win away from doing it. A few years ago, when the Giants beat them in the Super Bowl, um, the the Chiefs, um, they're probably going to end this year with one loss. You know, I, I think we're close. I think it'll happen. Or well, with a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes. Uh, he's, he's incredible. He's and, insane. And, yeah, we've not seen anything like him because he, he combines so many. He's got a rocket arm. He's he's got the ability to run. He combines like a Tarkenton, a Stallback, uh, a Joe Namath. He combines all of them into one person. He's incredible. Well, that's um, that's one thing. The salary cap though is going to hinder the Chiefs eventually. It's going to hit them with that massive contract that he signed. And that's that's eventually. the thing. Did they have in the seventies a a sort? They didn't have a salary cap. What did they do? No. What did they do? If if your owner was rich and if he didn't, you know, mind spending the money, that was great. But they didn't have free agency like they do now. 
you couldn't renegotiate your contract every year because the owners were in collision with each other. They, they weren't going to, it, it was almost like a fraternity of owners. They weren't going to try and steal your players because they didn't want you stealing, raiding their players. So they basically wouldn't sign players from other teams if they wanted to renegotiate their contracts. And that meant that the players had to settle for what they were offered from their owners. Uh, once in a while, a player will hold out and will eventually get a little bit more money, but they wouldn't be getting any offers from anybody else. So it was more of a monopoly than it ever was in the 70s. And it, it took the 80s and the uh, couple of uh, lockouts to really do strikes. Oh, yes. Oh, the strike in 82 lasted 57 days. You that know, I, I vaguely, no, I don't remember. I remember reading about it. <laughs> Let's just say that. But I remember the one that happened, was it 86? 87. 87. The, I remember that one. That was and, a violent one. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. Um, I, but but were people, oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. There were, there were people that were, I mean, we're talking about people that wanted to go in and see the games. They were getting beaten up by, not by players, but by uh, people in union cities. And I'm thinking Philadelphia, where there are so many unions there that they, the a members of the AFL-CIO would be, you know, helping the players picket the games. And if somebody wanted to cross the picket line, I'm talking a fan, to go and see the game, they were getting beaten up. It was incredible. I, I saw it. I was there. I saw it. <laughs> it's incredible. So you have, uh, you're in Philadelphia. I, I was. You I, I was born and raised just north of Philly. Now, did you grow up an Eagles fan? Everybody asked me that. Uh, <laughs> I, I liked the Eagles, but I liked a lot of other teams as well. Now, I remember hearing from Arnie uh, some of that, uh, you know, the meeting that you had, the, the interview had. If you... <sighs> If you were to tell people, you know, I am a fan of a lot of different teams, what do you think their reaction would be? They'd walk away from you. <laughs> they, they, they don't think they, – they said, this guy's wishy-washy. Yeah, you know, they, they, they'd say, oh, oh, you're a diplomat or something like that. Oh, you don't, you don't have any loyalty or, you know. But they didn't understand that I, I just love the game for the game's sake. And I've seen a lot of what happens to a lot of people – and I, I saw people, you know, I saw stories of people that had to be talked off bridges after losing games. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's crazy. Um, but I, I kind of knew that I was going to write about the 70s. And the more teams that helped me out with my efforts, I became an instant fan of theirs. <laughs> so that's how it led to that. What is your... Uh your oldest thing that you own football wise. All right. I'll, I'll, if you say, I'll a, if you I'll say a jock strap, we're going to have to, we're going to have no, to leave. No, I'll fess <laughs> up. I'll fess up to it because I, I'm hoping that the statue of limitations has already been ex, extinguished. Um, when I was a kid, when I was a youngster, Oh God. I can't oh, see, see now, you. now we turned into Maury Povich here. I'm, I can't believe I'm going to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you it because people aren't going to believe me anyway. Um, 
I, I got a chance, my very first visit in, to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I was a kid. And um, me and my father went, God rest his soul. And there was a display there of Jim Thorpe, the famous um, Native American uh, yeah. football player, Hall of Famer. Yeah. And they had, they, they don't have it now. They, they, they have it all glassed off and stuff. But at that time, they, they had they had like a display where they had a, a piece of ground that was from a field that he played on and it was actual dirt from that field and my father held my um, my belt as I strained over the railing to grab some pieces of dirt from the field where Jim Thorpe played on at one time so I'm guilty of theft from the Pro Football Hall of Fame as a child. I um, doesn't that I make you feel better to to confess? I yeah. Until the police, <laughs> until the police come knocking at that door over there, yeah. Uh, now I still have that, and of course, there's nobody to corroborate it as being authentic because my father's passed away. And it's just me and nobody saw us do it. So anybody could look at it and say, you, you grab that from the parking lot outdoors, you know, or something like that. So I can't prove that it's authentic, but I know it's authentic. So that's the oldest thing I have. Well, that's pretty special. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's something that you can say, hey, well, you might have this, but I have this. And, and But you know what? I've never sold it. I don't think I ever will because nobody would even believe to, it to buy it because I, I, I have got no, no letter of authenticity. I would have loved to have seen Jim Thorpe play. Oh, me too. Good gracious. Hearing what he could do, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, he was one of, those, one of those players that could probably transcend generations. Oh, without a doubt. And, and he transcended sports. And and he was a unique guy, but but his whole family was unique. They in the Hall of Fame they have a sweater of his that was I believe from the Canton Bulldogs, and it's the the bottom of one of the sleeves is all ripped up. And um, I found out later that the reason that was all ripped up was because the uh, the Hall of Fame asked you know for donations for their museum when they first started out. And by this time, um, uh, Mrs. Thorpe told the Hall of Fame, here, you can have his sweater. And they asked her, why, why is it all ripped up on the sleeve? And he, she said, well, one of our dogs like to chew on it a lot. So here. <laughs> Not only do you have Jim Thorpe's sweater, you have his dog drool. <laughs> Who else can say that, too? Now, you know, I don't have that, but. But that's in the Hall of that's Fame. That's in the Hall of Fame. I remember seeing that. It's uh, it was neat. Uh, it it looks it looks just like what you're describing a sweater with yeah. a big C on the front. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. couple yeah, more questions. Couple more questions. You you yeah. uh, write for the uh, Pro Football Writers Writers of America Writers of America, um, and uh, you you were one of the things I heard from Arnie's interview that I would love to ask you about is meeting. And this wasn't under the pro football writers. This was another company, but you got to meet uh, a couple of Packers, Packer greats. Oh yes. Yeah. 
Oh, you gotta, met, you gotta tell us that. Uh, I met uh, Bart Starr and Herb Adderley on the same same evening, and it was in Philadelphia. And I, uh, I was, I was back at that time. I was writing for a newspaper, a small town newspaper, and uh, my editor gave me um, a pass to go to a Phillies baseball game to interview Bart Starr, who was receiving an award. He was in Philadelphia receiver reward. So I went there. And uh, got a chance to meet him. I was so shocked. I was, man, I'm meeting Bart Starr, you know, and got a chance to interview him. And um, he was, he had like one handler there, one guy that was like a um, um, a chaperone. And uh, he had uh, also, he had a lot of places that he had to go, but one of them was in another section of Veterans Stadium where Herb Adderley was where the, he was, he was, Herb Adderley was going to interview Bart Starr, two teammates. So I asked um, Mr. Starr, hey, do you mind if I tag along? No, no, come on, you know. So there I am, you know, kind of like in Bart Starr's entourage, walking down the hallways <laughs> of Vet Stadium, and I got a chance to meet Herb Adderley, and they talk and whatever and stuff. And it was kind of neat watching them. And I got my photo taken with both of them. That was oh, cool. Man. And I still have that, by the way. And then, um, I, you know, after that was over, I figured, well, I still have uh, this pass in the, for the luxury box. I'll go up and watch the rest of the baseball game. So I go up there and watch the rest of the baseball game. But maybe about five minutes after I sit down, guess who sits down next to me? Bart Starr and Herb Adderley. And I was done interviewing him, and, and he, you know, they just started talking to me about football and everything for another hour. And it was like, holy cow, I'm, I'm in football heaven here. It, you know, here I'm, I'm not just getting autographs, but I'm talking to these two gods of the game, you know, for an hour. So finally, Bart Starr has to catch a flight. We say our goodbyes and whatever, but I follow Bart Starr out with his handler, and he's walking out of the stadium, and a, a ticket taker notices him. He goes, are you Bart Starr? He goes, yes, I am, you know, and he stops, and he stops, you know, he knows he's got a flight to catch, but he talks to the ticket taker for like five, ten minutes, a complete stranger, and I'm thinking, what a, what a guy. Imagine, do you think Terry Bradshaw would do that today? No, I don't think so. Uh, very down to earth. So down to earth, it's incredible. And, you know, I became a Bart Starr fan from that moment on. And um, what, what an incredible opportunity. Uh, I'll never forget it. See, that, that, that's what this podcast is about, Mr. Joe. It's about what makes football family to people and to mm -hmm. me just looking at your face and your eyes and how you were talking, uh, it showed me that meant a lot to you. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and even though you might not have been say a, a fan of that team as much as you were others, be, seeing that person and knowing he's real and both yeah. of them, both of them, that they're yeah. real and uh, that they're, that they're genuine. Boy, that moved the Packers up on your list, didn't it? Oh, sure did. And um, you know, and I, I didn't know too much about them. Uh, but I've, I read a lot about them afterwards and, uh, you know, both, I mean, uh, Bart passed away last year yeah. and this year Herb passed away. Um, 
you know, so I, I kind of want to interview as many of these older guys as I can, you know, just so that their stories get told in some way, shape or form. Well, I hope you get the chance to do that. Um, If you could start a franchise right now, okay, we're going to call them the Philadelphia Z's and we'll we'll name them after you. You'll be the CEO and the president and you'll be the the ticket taker. Okay. And you could put, let's say in the backfield, you can pick a quarterback and they used fullback a lot back then, but you get a quarterback and a running back. I'll give you those two and then we'll, I mean, obviously, it'd take a lot more to pick the others. Well, you the, get a quarterback in it from the seventies. From the seventies, I'd, I'd have to go with Roger Staubach, um, as far as quarterback, because of just his what he would do to try to win a game is just incredible. He combined running, scrambling, throwing. Plus, he never gave up. You know, and he, no matter how bad they were behind, he just never gave up. And that's that's what you really want. Um, running back, I'm I'm going with O.J. Simpson. I mean, he led the league in rushing four out of five years. That's a that's a heck of a thing. I don't know if any runner since has ever come near that. I know Jim Brown did prior to that, but four out of five years. But see, with, with Jim Brown, he was a man running among boys. I mean, that's Jim Brown was so much better than everybody. Right. And, and to me, uh, he's probably top two or three players of all time, period. Of all time. Yeah, that's um, true. But O.J. Simpson, you could see his skill playing against people who were sort of equal. Jim Brown was just a beast. O.J. Simpson was playing with people. So how, does that mean O.J. Simpson is better than Jim Brown? No. No. But you're, the competition was closer. You know, it was, and and they were two totally different types of runners. Um, OJ, I I thought had more moves. Everybody thinks, well, he has a lot of speed. He did, but he had a lot of moves too. Jim was more of a power runner. I saw a lot of players bounce off Jim, whereas OJ, he he didn't really hit you. He tried to avoid hitting you, but his idea was to get to a hole quick and get through it quick. And Jim Brown, did. imagine what Jim Brown could have done if he played a couple more years. Good gracious. Oh, the, yeah. Well, you know, he, he retired only nine years. I mean, yeah. but look at it now. The, the runners today, they don't last long. Uh, the running backs say, you know, of course, you're not asked to run the ball that much anymore. It's throw, throw, throw. And then when you're done throwing, throw some more. Um, it's a different game now. So you have you – have- uh, Roger Staubach, and you have O.J. Simpson. Yeah, uh, both of those players to me could play this in this NFL. They could play in this NFL. Uh, obviously, with Roger, you would want him to get a little bit more weight to him. But O.J. Simpson is just as bad. He's a yeah. he's a Nick Chubb type runner, just very shifty. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's got the hip movement, kind of like Barry Sanders did, where you thought he was going one way and his legs would go another. It's just amazing what he could do. I saw OJ, I saw against Miami on a grass field, two Dolphin defensive backs had an angle on him, and he beat them both down the sideline for a touchdown. I mean, two of them, not just one, two of them, and he beat them both. 
just an incredible when he wanted to, to really run fast, it was hard to catch him. He was almost like one of these gazelles that they have as wide receiver anymore. Right. He could also run with some isotoners on too. <laughs> That's right. He was the endorser. Well, Mr. Joe, I appreciate your time today. And again, uh, let's hear your books in, in your, in your uh, Twitter handle. Yeah. Well, well, the books are the NFL in the 1970s pro football's most important decade um, the other one is the year the Packers came back, Green Bay's 1972 resurgence. And the third one is America's trailblazing middle linebacker, the story of NFL Hall of Famer, Willie Lanier. Twitter, you can catch me on, I think it's Joe Zagorski or Joseph Zagorski. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also, I'm also, uh, I'm on Facebook and uh um, I also have another Facebook page called the NFL in the 1970s. And I'm going to have to, as soon as this is over, I'm going to go friend you there. And you also host a podcast. Oh uh, yeah. The, um, uh, the pigskin past and Arnie's the, the guru of that. Yeah. He's, he's our godfather. Uh, <laughs> one thing I like about your, your podcast, Joe, is how uh, genuine, how down to earth you are. Your oh, cadence thanks. is great, and you sound great, and oh, your thanks. topics are great too. Um, and as soon as they pop up, I press play and listen to it. You, you <laughs> leave me wanting more, and that's that's a good sign for a podcast. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much. Now, now I got to get a bigger hat size. Well, see, that happens. That happens, and and I'm sure in the '70s they had some pretty big hats. <laughs> Tell me, you you got it? Did I lose you? Okay, you're breaking up there. <laughs> All right, there we go. Did, do you have? A 1970s trucker hat. I think we just lost Joe Sigorski. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.